Today's passage comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. It's the transfiguration. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 13. And the word of God reads, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah, or first Elijah, must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all, th all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as I shared uh, with everyone, this is a very dense passage. Uh, there is so much going on here. Some things that we can understand, some things that we, we just will never be able to understand on this side of eternity uh, because of our limited capacity to understand the wonders of your identity, of your character, of your nature. Uh, but Lord, we, we pray nonetheless that as we examine this passage of the transfiguration, uh, that we would come away with something nonetheless that would shape our love for you, our devotion to you, and our understanding of who your Son is. Lord, help us to come away with an enriched understanding of the King. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was studying this passage, um, I, I've never preached from this passage before. And as I was studying, for those of you that attended men's conference, I, I kind of shared my process when I prepare a sermon. Uh, I like to take pieces of paper out and I like to fill up those pages with observations and a page full of questions I have about the passage. And usually during the sermon preparation process, as I study the passage, I usually get answers to those questions. Uh, but this is a passage that raised more answers than questions, which, sorry, more questions than answers, rather, uh, which is why um, I mentioned I, I like just, rather than preaching this, I, I prefer to have just a conversation um, about this passage. But let's give it a shot. Uh, if you recall last week, uh, I mentioned that last week's passage was a turning point in Mark's gospel. Uh, if you were to divide Mark into two parts, 
Part one ended with last week's passage, and today's passage is like the beginning of part two. Um, Part one, up until chapter eight, uh, the ministry of Jesus was centered in and around Galilee. Uh, Jesus would travel across, back and forth, to and fro from the Sea of Galilee. He'd go from town to town uh, in the villages around the Sea of Galilee. But from today's passage, we will see a change in the trajectory of Jesus' journey. Because from chapter 9 onwards, the trajectory will be towards Jerusalem. And the theology of this second part of Mark's gospel will be very cross-centered. It will be talking more and more about the suffering of Christ that is to come and the journey of Jesus' mission that's going to find its climactic peak at the cross on Calvary. And if you read through Mark's gospel, these two parts, it's, it doesn't feel coincidental. It feels very intentional by Mark that this is the second part of two parts. And particularly because there is a special guest appearance from God the Father in chapter 1 and chapter 9. In chapter 1, you find that God the Father makes an appearance, an audible appearance at the baptism of Jesus. In chapter 1, Jesus gets baptized. And as Jesus ascends out of the water, the Father from heaven speaks, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And in today's passage, we find the Father making another guest appearance by saying, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. So it's kind of bookended neatly with this appearance from the Father. And I think it's intentional by Mark, uh, because it is a pivotal point in his gospel. Now, if you recall last week, we saw Peter gave a confession about who Jesus was. Jesus asked me, who do you say that I am? I know who people say that I am. Who do you say that I am? And Peter made that correct theological confession that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And that's something to be applauded because I don't think I would have gotten it if I followed Jesus on his ministry. But even though Peter got his theology right, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, we saw that he had a misunderstanding about what this title represented. And Jesus had to explain to Peter, the apostles, and the crowd that was gathered that, you know, he was saying to them, look, I, I understand that you were expecting a warrior Messiah. You were expecting an Alexander, a Napoleon. I'm not that guy. I know you were waiting for like a general, a military general of a Messiah, but I'm not a warrior Messiah. I am a suffering Messiah. I haven't come to conquer. I have come to die. My journey isn't to go to Rome and overthrow the Roman government and the Roman empire, or emperor. My journey is to go to Calvary and die on a cross. And that would have been a slap in the face for the disciples and the people that had gathered to listen to Jesus. It would have been a very depressing thing to hear. And in today's passage, we find that six days have passed. Six days for them to allow this devastating news to sink in. That all their hopes and dreams about what they were desiring for in a Messiah, that was all shattered. And they had six days to allow that to sink in and for them to mull over it. It must have been a depressing six days for them. I'm sure the apostles must have sort of questioned, have we, have we made a mistake? Do we really want to follow a guy that's going to die? And so at the end of the six days, it says that Jesus took three of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, 
and he led them up a mountain. Uh, the passage doesn't specify which mountain, uh, but it does say it was a high mountain. And, you know, the, the gospel writers don't use descriptors like this unless it actually means something. So when he says a high mountain, it must have been pretty high. Uh, most scholars agree that it was a mountain called Mount Hermon, which was around where they were at the time. Uh, I googled how high this mountain is. It is two kilometers high, not a small mountain. It would have been quite a hike to get to the top of this mountain. And what was the point of this hike? What was the point of going up the mountain? Well, if you read through any of the Gospels, or even through the Old Testament, you find that the mountain signifies a place where people meet with God. And whenever Jesus went up a mountain, throughout the, the Gospel accounts, you find it was always to go up and pray to God. Traditionally, it was a place where you went to have secret prayer alone with God. Now, my wife and her family love hiking. They're all very fit. Um, all of them. Her parents, despite their age, are very fit. Her dad, I heard back in the day, uh, he loved hiking so much that he'd pack tents, pack a backpack full of food and, you know, like, you know, gas cookers and meat and whatever. And then he'd carry my wife on the front and he'd hike up like two, three kilometer mountains. Um, yeah, like they're very, very fit. And I remember after my honeymoon, uh, my wife and her parents took me hiking. Uh... I'm the worst person to go hiking with because I've got flat feet and I'm very, very unfit. And I remember after about 15 minutes, the, 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 the path was like this. It was just, it wasn't like a nice slope. It was just like this. And so I'm climbing up and after about like 20 minutes, I was like, I can't do this. But the path was so narrow and there were so many people, there was like a whole line of people so you couldn't stop. So I told them at some point, you guys go on without me. I'm just going to crawl over where the bushes are. I'm just going to relax it. You go on ahead without me. I'm the worst person to go on a hike with. Um, but these apostles, and ironically, the mountain we were going up, it wasn't even two kilometers. This mountain was two kilometers. The mountain we were going up was probably like a kilometer. Uh, my wife jokes that that wasn't even a mountain. That was just a hill. Um, but this was a two kilometer mountain. It was no joke. It would have been a, like an, an exhausting height. It would have taken everything out of them. And Jesus takes them up all the way to the top of this mountain to organize a prayer meeting with them. They would have gotten to the top not knowing what, what this was all about. And Jesus says, all right, guys, let's start our prayer meeting. Now, Luke's gospel points out that all three of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, they were exhausted by the time they got up to the top. And rightly so, two kilometers uphill. Um, they were so exhausted that when Jesus started praying, uh, they fell asleep. They seemed to fall asleep a lot at prayer meetings. But this prayer meeting, they especially fell asleep. And Mark, or Luke rather, describes it as not just that they dozed off. It was, it was a very heavy sleep. Um, and it's in this moment that the transfiguration occurs what is the transfiguration? If you've read through the Bible, you'll know what this is. But if, you, if you're not that familiar with Scripture, you're probably wondering, what, what's, what's a transfiguration? And the word comes, uh, the Greek word, it comes from that word metamorphosis. Uh, for those of you that watch kid shows, you remember the mighty Morphin Power Rangers? Morphing, yeah, it, it's like it's where you change from one form to another. You literally changed or transformed 
but the word implies you're transforming into an upgraded form. So, like the ultimate glow up is what's, what's happening here. Um, and we see that that's what happens. Jesus has an incredible glow up in verses 2 and 3. It says, And he transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, think about this for a moment. From chapter 1 of Mark's gospel, Jesus' ministry has been, it's just been nothing but go, 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 go. Non-stop, no time to rest, no time to eat, no time to just do laundry and have a bath and just relax. It's just been non-stop for Jesus. He's gone from town to town. And if his clothes, if they were white when he first put them on, there's no way they would have been white by now. Especially after hiking two kilometers up a mountain. His clothes would have stunk. It would have been stained. But Mark writes that in the transfiguration, his clothes became radiant. And not just radiant, it became impossibly white. The way Mark describes it and the gospel writers describe it, it's whiter than any color that people could produce by bleaching their clothes. And not only that, if you read through Luke and Matthew's version of these events, you'll find in Luke 9 and Matthew 17 that it describes not just the clothes being transfigured, not just Jesus having a glow up with regards to his outfit, but it says that his face started to shine. It shone, and the simile is that it shone like the sun. Now, like I mentioned earlier, today's passage, uh, it's part two. Um, it can either be viewed as a dramatic conclusion to part one or a dramatic introduction to part two. But up until today's passage, in part one, we saw that one of the themes, one of the main themes that came out of the first eight chapters were these signs and wonders that Jesus was performing. He was performing sign after sign. And what, what, what did I explain were the purposes of these signs? The purpose of a sign is to point. And in the case of Jesus, the purpose of his signs was to point to his identity, who he was, to reveal who he was. And so what's taking place in today's passage at the Transfiguration is that for the first time in history, for a brief moment, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. He empties his deity. He's 100% man. When the disciples see him, they just see a man. But for the first time in history, this veil of his humanity, it's being lifted. Just for a split moment, it's being lifted. And we, we in the apostles, in the transfiguration, what's happening is that we're being given a glimpse of the true essence of Jesus shining through. It's a limited glimpse, but nonetheless, nonetheless, it's a true glimpse of his essence shining through. And in that moment, the apostles, they see, they catch a glimpse of the glory of Christ for a split, split moment. And when they see his glory, they don't understand exactly what's, what this all means. They don't understand the theology behind it. They don't understand the significance of it. They just know it's crazy what they're seeing. And it was undoubtedly an event that was burned forever into their memory. It's something that they never, ever forgot. 
And we know this because of their writings. If you read through John's Gospel and that opening chapter, you'll find John's Gospel begins very differently to the other synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's Gospel, in chapter 1, it begins with that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a very unusual beginning. And if you read on in verse 14, John describes Jesus. He says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he says this. He says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of, full of grace and truth. If you've ever read the opening chapter of John's Gospel and you're wondering what he's talking about here, whether he's just being poetic, he's talking about the transfiguration. I have physically seen his glory and it's changed me forever. Peter, who's also one of the apostles present, writes about it as well in chapter 2. Peter, Peter, oh, sorry, 2 Peter, rather, chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. We've seen his majesty. We caught a glimpse of his majesty, verse 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from the, from the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we heard ourselves this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. It's talking about the transfiguration. Decades later, they're writing about this because it was such a transforming encounter for them. Now, what's crazy isn't just the transfiguration, even though that in itself is amazing, but the appearance of two other individuals that we know to be Elijah and Moses. These two other guys suddenly appear. Two prominent figures from Israel's history, they suddenly appear, and they're just having a casual chit-chat with Jesus, who's glowing like the sun. Like, remember, it was pitched, by the time they got up the mountain, it would have been pitch darkness, but because of the transfiguration, it would have looked as bright as day. Here is this being, their master that they're following, shining like the sun. And the two arguably most prominent figures in Israel's history, just having a three-way conversation, ministry, ministry chat with Jesus. And one of the questions I had that I wasn't able to find an answer to was, um, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Uh, it doesn't say in the passage. Like today, if you want to find out what Captain Cook looked like, you just Google and there's like paintings of Captain Cook. Or if you want to find out what, I don't know, like a previous George Washington looked like, you can just look at American currency or Google and you'll find the painting of George Washington. They didn't have Google back then. They didn't have Wikipedia back then. How on earth did they know what Moses and Elijah looked like? I don't know. Maybe you guys will find it. If you find out, let me know. I don't know. Um... Maybe they heard Jesus refer to them by, by name, but the passage doesn't actually say. What we do know, though, is what they were talking about. How do we know? Because of Luke's gospel. Thank God that there was multiple accounts written with multiple eyewitness details. Because uh, Luke's gospel says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They were talking about his departure about the journey that Jesus would take to Jerusalem, this departure that would result in the cross. They were talking about Jesus' pending suffering and death. Now, according to today's passage, verse 6 tells us that Peter and the apostles 
were terrified by everything they were seeing. And rightly so. Uh, you've just, like if you put it in perspective, they've spent the entire day walking up a mountain. They've just done a bit of ministry work, hiked two kilometers up a mountain. It's getting dark. You're tired. You want to break. You want to rest. And Jesus says, let's pray. Let's have a prayer meeting. And you're like, anyone that's in ministry, like when you're tired, you want to rest. And he's like, oh, I can't pretend like I don't want to pray. Oh, let's, let's have a prayer meeting. And then you start praying. And then you fall asleep because you're so tired. And then you wake up. And it's like Jesus is glowing like the sun. Not just his face. His, clothes, his, his outfit has become a glow-in-the-dark outfit. And his face is just glowing like the sun. It's meant to be nighttime. Why is it so bright? And not only that, Moses and Elijah are having a casual chat with Jesus. Moses and Elijah, guys that existed like 800 to 1,000 years ago. They're meant to be dead. Well, not Elijah, but Moses is meant to be dead. And he's here. You can understand why they were terrified. And then Peter responds in verse 5 to everything he's seeing. And he says, Rabbi, it's good. It's good that we're here. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for you, one for you. Let's pitch a tent. Let's, let's set up camp. What does that even mean? Who says that? Jesus is standing here glowing like the sun. His face is as bright as the sun. You, look, you can't even look at the sun in the sky because it hurts your eyes. They can't even look at Jesus Moses and Elijah, who existed almost a thousand years prior, are standing there. And Peter says, I'll make you a tent, I'll make you a tent, and I'll make you a tent. And you've got to give him, cut him a bit of slack. He probably was very confused. He was terrified, but he probably, probably was confused. But he says that. Um, and to compound that terror... If what he'd witnessed wasn't enough to scare him, it says in Mark's gospel that they were suddenly enveloped by a giant cloud. Not like clouds started to form, but they were enveloped by a giant cloud. Imagine a cloud just floating towards you. Not over in the sky, but floating towards you. And you're enveloped in it. And as you're enveloped in the cloud, you suddenly hear a divine voice thundering from the cloud around. You can't see where the voice is coming from, but you hear a thundering voice saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's less friendlier than chapter one. This is my beloved son in chapter one. With whom I'm well pleased. Now it's listen to him. And then suddenly, as soon as they hear those words, they look around, and Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus' face isn't glowing, and his glow-in-the-dark outfit isn't glowing anymore either. Just the regular human Jesus that they've been following. Then verse 9 reads, As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, like I mentioned, this passage is passage raises for me more questions than questions than answers. And it was the same way for the apostles, so I know I'm in good company. Because in verse 10, 
they asked themselves, what is this rising from the dead that Jesus is talking about? And then in verse 11, they say, why did the scribes say that Elijah has to come first? And what does Jesus do? Just like any good CG leader, he answers their question and then he gives them a discussion question. He says that Elijah must come first, or does come first, to restore all things. And then the question is, how is it written of the Son of Man? How is it written of me that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. What's this thing about Elijah? Well, in a nutshell, the Old Testament in the book of Malachi promises that a prophet like Elijah will come before the Messiah, before Jesus. There's going to be a guy that's kind of like Elijah. And if you read through the Gospels, you, you learn that, that that person was John the Baptist. He was the way, one that came making the way for the Christ. He clears the path. He proclaims people, repent for the kingdom of God is near. In other words, the king's coming, get ready. Jesus explains this. And then he throws out a question to them. Because Elijah isn't meant to be the main character. He is. And Jesus asks, asks them. He says, what about me? Okay, I get that you're, you're curious about Elijah. I'll answer your question about Elijah. But aren't you curious about what the Old Testament says about me? About the Messiah? Like, you thought I was going to be a warrior king, but look at the scriptures. It doesn't refer to me as a warrior king, a warrior messiah. It refers to me as a suffering messiah, that I'll be treated with contempt. And then that's how today's passage ends. And this is where my sermon will probably fall apart, but let's give it a shot. Uh, not three applications today, three questions and then an observation and whatever you want to call it. Uh, three questions. The first question, and this is where, like I said, I prefer to have a chat about this passage over coffee than preach it. Because the first question that we should ask is, why did the transfiguration happen? What was the point of this? And I don't have any answers, <laughs> definitive answers for you, because I don't know. Uh, I do have opinions, and my opinion about why it happened is that if you look forward to the remainder of the chapters in the Gospels. If you read through the book of Acts or if you study church history, I've added some church history books in the FL, FLM library, so if you're curious, you can grab some. If you study church history, you'll find that Peter, James, and John, uh, they would face immense suffering. After Jesus ascends into heaven, they would have to suffer immensely because of their devotion to Jesus. We saw Jesus say last week that if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself, pick up your cross, and really live a life of suffering. And Peter, James, and John, their lives would embody exactly that. And not only that, their lives would be critical to the establishment of the early church. And it would happen in the face of intense persecution and opposition. And so that question, why did the transfiguration happen, particularly to them, I think one of the primary reasons was to give them conviction and confidence. It was a sneak peek at the majesty of Christ. Like a sneak peek at who it is that they're, they're really, really following. 
like, I don't know if you've ever sh- seen this show, Undercover Boss. Have you guys seen Undercover Boss? If you haven't seen the show, the idea is that there'd be like a big company and the CEO would put on a disguise, maybe put on like a fake mustache and a wig. And then he'd go, like, let's say that it's, Mc- I don't know if McDonald's have done it, but let's say that McDonald's, let's say that the CEO of McDonald's dressed up in like a, a mustache and a wig and he'd go and work as just an entry line worker at your local McDonald's. It'd be like that CEO coming up to you and taking off that mustache and like, it's me. <laughs> That's kind of what's happening at the transfiguration. It's like a glimpse, an unveiling of that, that humanity of Christ and showing, allowing that deity to shine through so that Peter, James, and John could have every confidence about who they're following. And it must have been such a life-transforming encounter because as we saw, they would write about that encounter decades later in the Gospel of John and the second epistle of Peter. Second question, why did Moses and Elijah appear? Like out of everyone, there's so many prominent people in Israel's history. There's David, there's Solomon, there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There's the prophet Isaiah. There are so many people that could have appeared. Why Moses and Elijah specifically? And again, I don't know exactly, but I have my theories. Uh, One of them is that both of these men encountered what's called the Shekinah glory of God in the Old Testament. They experienced this glory cloud that we saw today. They both encountered that glory cloud in the Old Testament. And it's these two individuals that encountered this glory cloud on a mountain, just like Jesus and the apostles in today's passage. Also, with Moses, who remembers what was Moses given when he was on the mountain? Two tablets. He was given the law. Symbolically, the figurehead of Moses signifies the law of the Old Testament. And for Elijah, he's considered one of the most iconic prophets in the Old Testament. He was the prophet that was going to help deliver a message of restoration to Israel. So in Moses and Elijah, you have these two figureheads that Jews know represent, on one hand, the law of God, and on the other hand, the prophets of God. The law and the prophets, which is what the Jews know as the Old Testament. This is why in Matthew 5, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to do what? To fulfill them. In other words, the Old Testament is all about me, and who better to appear at the transfiguration than the two guys that signify the Old Testament. And so when the transfiguration occurs, what we see is that Moses isn't transfigured, Elijah isn't transfigured, but Jesus is transfigured, Because even though Moses and Elijah are significant people, even though they led significant lives, the purpose of their lives was to point to Jesus. Despite living hundreds of years before the incarnation of Jesus, their purpose in life was that their life would leave a legacy pointing to Jesus. Third question. Why were they enveloped in a cloud and what does it signify? I could probably think of a number of cooler ways for God to appear that I think would be cooler than a cloud. Uh, Cloud is a very weird way to appear, I think. 
Uh, but for those who are familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that the cloud represents the presence of God, specifically the Shekinah glory of God. And like I mentioned, there was another reason why Moses and Elijah appeared, because they encountered the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God on a mountain. And if you read through 1 Kings, you'll find Elijah. That's where you find this encounter. Elijah is a prophet on the run. He's discouraged because Ahab and Jezebel want to kill him. And while he's on a mountain, the Shekinah glory of God passes him by. In Exodus 40, when the tabernacle is erected, the Shekinah glory of God descends upon the tent of meeting. And what's crazy about both of these encounters is that when this glory cloud descends or passes them by, they can't approach it. If you read in 1 Kings, Elijah has to cover his face with his cloak because of the glory. For Moses in Exodus 40, he can't even approach, he can't, like, not just enter, he can't even approach the tent of meetings because of the glory. And yet, in today's passage, we see the apostles standing not outside, but in the midst. They're enveloped by the glory cloud. They're overshadowed by the Shekinah glory of God, glory that shines from Christ, around Christ, and they're able to stand in it because of Christ. Now, this is where we get to the application. I have observation. Uh, there's many moving parts to today's passage, and if you want to have a chat, if you're very keen to learn more about this passage and want to have a chat with it, I'd love to have a chat with people about this. But it was a struggle to land on any one thing. And I stayed up writing and rewriting this. And I probably even won't follow what I've written. But if I was one thing that I were to land on, uh, it would be this. To heed the words of the Father from the glory cloud today. What did he say? He said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And this is what's called an imperative command, meaning it's mandatory. It's not optional. The father says of the son, listen to him. Why? Because this is my son. He's not just another Moses. He's not an Elijah. He's the Messiah. He's the one that the law and prophets were pointing to. Yes, he's the embodiment of everything that I promised from the Old Testament, all the way back to Genesis. But at the transfiguration, it's like the father is saying, what you're seeing here, is that he's not just a figure that you are waiting for. As that veil of humanity is lifted, you are seeing that he is God. He is the essence of my essence. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is my son. Why should I listen to him? Because of who he is. Because he's God. We shouldn't need any more convincing than that. And my encouragement for you from today's passage is to be intentional about listening to him, obeying the Father's call to listen to him. Because at every church I have pastored in my 12 years, Every congregation where I've sat down and spoken with people and I ask them 
this question, how is your walk with Jesus? How are you doing spiritually? I feel like I get the same answer from everyone. Pretty much everyone. And that answer is, I'm not where I should be. I'm not doing too well. I don't know what to do. Spiritually, I'm, like, I'm not where I was in the past. I, there was a time where I was like this with God. I'm not there. I'm working on getting there. I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to fix this. I seem to hear this a lot. And I get it. Because I go through that as well sometimes. And we all go through seasons like that. But this is why we should heed the Father's call. To listen to Him. Because that vicious cycle of self-defeat where we're like, I don't know how to get there. There was a time a few years ago where I really felt God and I'm not there. I want... The reason we fall into the cycle of defeat is because we keep listening to ourselves. We keep looking for the remedy within ourselves. And we end up in this vicious, brutal cycle of defeat. And what the gospel tells us is that we're not called to live a life of defeat. We're called to live a life of listening. Because if we listen, we realize that we're called to live a life of victory. If we listen to him, we realize that everything that we need to break out of this vicious cycle of defeat has already been given to us. We just need to lay a hold of it. And it begins by listening to the Son. So many times spiritual defeat happens because we listen to the world, we listen to ourselves, we listen to our friends, even when it comes to our own identity, we listen to other people. Even when it comes to interacting with each other, we shape our interactions by listening to what the world has to say instead of what the Son has to say. The reality of what the Son says is that when we look around, when we look in the mirror, we should see a son or daughter of the Most High God that has been ransomed by the blood of the Son. That the victory has already been won. When we look at our brothers and sisters at FLM or any church, we should see an individual that is a son or daughter of the Most High God and we should treat them with that kind of love and respect. If you are in defeat and you don't know where to start, try to be simple and intentional. Make time to listen to Him. What does that look like? Where do, you, where do you go to listen to him? It begins with God's word. And it begins with prayer. And I know that sounds like a cop-out textbook answer and a cheap way to end the sermon. But that's the bread and butter of our faith. Prayer and God's word. And with prayer, when you open God's word, I, I bought a new Bible from Bookland. I thought it looked cute. <laughs> I bought a new Bible. But... When you open this God's uh, open God's word, sometimes you just need to stop for a second because we're always like on the go, rush, rush, rush. We need to quickly read this and go on to other things. Just stop for a moment 
and try to comprehend who is speaking when you read these words. And as you pray, before you list off all your petitions and your prayer topics to God, just take a minute for just just to stop and comprehend and let it sink in who it is that you're talking to. And just take a minute, instead of like giving him all your demands and walking away, just say to God, look, I'm I'm just going to sit here in silence and listen to what you have to say to me. And I'm going to conclude today's sermon uh, by just sharing my week. Uh, This week, I've been very, very stressed. I didn't realize how stressed I was. But I felt like I'd been carrying a massive burden on my shoulders, maybe because of work. Work's just been crazy busy. And it's been really stressful. And kind of like with the apostles in today's passage, like I looked forward to the prayer meeting, but I was tired for the prayer meeting. Um, Physically, I turned up, but I have to admit, mentally, I don't think I was there initially. But I was reminded of God's goodness because I didn't lead this prayer meeting. Uh, Elza got to lead this prayer meeting and I was very grateful for that because someone else was leading and it gave me the opportunity to just sit and listen. I got to listen as Elza shared God's word. Uh, I got to listen to other people pray. I wasn't deliberately eavesdropping. I'm not talking about like I was listening to your prayer, but I was just the sound of the saints praying. And as I heard that, it was like a, a sense of relief flooding my heart. Like I am exactly where I need to be right now. But it began by listening. And watching God move. And allowing God to remind me. Just as God revealed to the apostles through the transfiguration who Jesus was. I was reminded that everything I do for work, for ministry, I'm not doing it on my own. But I have a mighty God that is behind me, spurring me on, empowering me. And not just me, all of you as well. Every step of the way. But it begins with this place of listening. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we just need to get away from the chaos of everyday life and just sit in silence to bask in your goodness and just to listen, just to watch you move. And I say chaos because so often we get consumed by the busyness of life that we miss seeing the times that you do move. And in missing these occasions, we forget that you're moving at all. We forget who you are, your sovereignty, your divine plan, your kingdom that's being fulfilled, and your purpose for our life. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would repent of being so immersed in chaos and we pray from this day forth that we just take that moment to stop and just listen to hear your voice not just to lay all of our petitions at your feet 
but be receptive to what you have to say to us. Your words of healing and encouragement that are so nourishing and restoring for our souls. I ask this for myself, for the leaders and all of us here today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.